Dotnet Rocks episode 795 with guest Chris Jackson. Recorded live Friday, August 17th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, and we're here for the next hour or so. Chris, uh, Chris Jackson coming up in just a minute. But first, let me say hi to my friend Richard. What's up, my friend? I am freshly back from that conference. How did that conference go it was it had a very code mash like feel to it you know uh-huh. cross platform uh leon gertzing was there he sort of radiates you know it's leon yeah uh but we what really awesome show uh it, they it had a, they did a very camp like feel to it it had there was tents up and it was very funny uh but and they did it at kalahari but the one in wisconsin dells Mm-hmm. So they still had the water park. There were lots of kids running around. Everyone brought their families. We had an awesome time. Should we announce the road trip on this show? I guess we're allowed to. I guess the cat's out of the bag. This is the first show we've recorded since we um, got the green light for the 2012 .NET Rocks road trip. Yeah. Yeah, and somebody tweeted about it. Now look what's happening. Now look what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody w- wants in on it. Um, you know, wants us to come to their place. We have tentative 30 stops. Yep. Uh, I'm, is it premature to list off the stops, Richard? A little bit, but the, yeah. big, the big thing you know about this tour is we are tr- definitely trying to go places we haven't gone before. Right. A We're going across we the top to of the country. Yep. And... and- couple places in canada yeah long, it's a longer trip we're actually going across the continent twice yeah once across the top west to east and then east to west now we're, uh, we're going to have a few breaks here and there because other things are going on uh, that we don't want to overlap with so that we don't worry about us yes i know it's going to be two and a half months but we are spending some time with our families in the midst of all of that but we are doing our very best to come to you Right. So more details as they come. There will be a new website, and mm-hmm. uh, there'll be a new RV, and it's going to be uh, spectacular. Spectacular is not the word I'm thinking of. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> so better know a framework. All right. Because you better. Because you better know. What now, do you got? This is the coolest little thing. I talked about this before, but it's so cool. I, I just hope nobody misses it. It's a little gem hidden away in .NET 4. It's system.lazy. Ah. For lazy loading. Lazy loading. What's beautiful about this is that it's lazy of T. Okay. So you basically pass it the uh, a function, and uh, you, you pass it any kind of object you want, and your function is the initializer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it essentially has two properties, is value created and value. Right, so you pass the object, and value becomes that object, and then you can test is value created to see if it's been loaded. The only thing that uh, you want to avoid is throwing an exception in your initialization function. But uh, other than that, it's just beautiful and it just works. So if you have something that's going to take a long time to initialize, use System.lazy. It's good, so you don't have to wait. Don't have to wait. I like it a lot. 
Who's talking to us, Mr. Camel? I grabbed a comment off the .NET Rock site that was actually posted on the wrong show, but I'm not going to hold that against it. It was a great comment. This is uh, Alan Suarayan, who was actually commenting on show 788, which is the last of the NDC shows we published, the one with John McCoy talking about hacking.net. Mm. which I thought was a really odd show. I mean, it was a little odd. It was a little strange because, you know, there was a certain limit of specifics you could tell, you know. It, we it, have a love-hate relationship with John, let's say it yeah, that way. Yeah, we, we ended up calling him Darth Vader for a reason. Uh, but Alan goes on to say, uh, Hello, guys. First, I'd like to say how much I still enjoy .NET Rocks. Uh, keep it real. Awesome. Uh, regarding the show with John McCoy, excellent. I started getting excited when Better Know a Framework was about app domain. Oh, man, he loves this topic. Oh, yeah. You were correct in how many developers do not know much about this. Yeah. When I first started with .NET, I read a book called Essential.NET Volume 1, The Common Language Runtime, which taught me so much regarding app domains. It is such an important part of .NET that it helped me overcome some badly written third-party components by isolating them in an da- app domain. Isolation! Yes. Uh, however, on to the guts of the show, what an eye-opener. I remember that it's always been easy to decompile code in .NET, and I've always worried about that, but I've been amazed at how many vendors that supply protection for software, that software can be used by individuals to decompile software as well. Uh, I'm not sure how .NET in the future can prevent any of this, but it is evident that the development community must start taking this into consideration. Mm. Uh, Keep up the good work, and thanks for informing me so much over the years. There be bad guys out there. Yeah, I guess you know we're still waiting for our big incident, aren't we? Like, let's take a have a major .NET app actually cracked in such a way that it does cause harm. Because I mean, obfuscation has been around since the early days, although John sort of debunked an awful lot of that. But people aren't even doing that either, mm-hmm. and it's just not been a priority. So uh, that that was my only problem with uh, with with John's whole thing was show me the disaster. But it doesn't mean that it isn't important and, and worth considering. I don't think it's a, uh, a big enough concern to actually stop you from using .NET, but it is uh, it's something to think about. Anyway, Alan, thank you so much for your message, and we have read it on the show, so that means a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 280 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as those you hear on this show. 12 to 15 new courses a month. New courses every month are added to their library, which you can access for free for 10 days, uh, 200 minutes worth with a free trial. They offer a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much everything Microsoft, including a complete curriculum covering Windows 8 development. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our esteemed guest. Chris Jackson is principal consultant for the Windows Application Experience SWAT team. He's worked with enterprise customers around the world to help them investigate and mitigate application compatibility issues, as well as providing instructional training about Windows application compatibility for numerous industry events. Chris has been a software developer for over 12 years, with five of them spent with Microsoft. His certifications include MCP, MCAD, and MCSD, and he was formerly a Microsoft Windows MVP known in the community for his technical insight and problem-solving abilities. Currently, Chris resides in Chicago, Illinois. He's here now with us. Chris Jackson, welcome to .NET Rocks. 
Hey, great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. I love the idea of uh, a Windows application experience SWAT team. That sounds fun. What do you, what is your job like? That, that, and do you that really, sounds like I spend a lot of time on airplanes is what it sounds yeah, like. Do you really scale the walls in the black suit and coming down? Hut, 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 yeah. hut. Yeah, I was thinking more black helicopters and, and power <laughs> repelling it through office windows, but that's just me. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about what the, the problem space is, though, like what, what is the impact that new versions of Windows or of IE or of Office have on enterprise applications? It's way different than what you have for commercial software. Sure. With commercial software, we can and do just drive to the local Best Buy and buy one of each. Or as long as they're still app. in business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the enterprise stuff, you've got things that have big server-side implementations required or that were developed in-house. And, you know, historically, we just had no idea what we were doing. So, you know, we formed a team to go and spend time working with a number of different customers worldwide to just fly in, walk in the front door, and sit down with the team and really understand what it was that you know, these changes were doing and how they were impacting uh, the entire enterprise customer segment. So do you, what are some of the you – you must have tons of stories of how you helped this company overcome such and such a problem. Or does this usually involve like – Oh, oh, yeah, this is a situation in which this program absolutely won't work unless we build them a special version of Microsoft Word or a special version of 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 Excel or something like that. Is that essentially what it boils down to? Well, a lot of what we try to do is to bring in some of the same knowledge that we use on commercial software. Because if you look at the stuff that you can buy, we've actually kept a really remarkably high percentage of it working. You know, and we don't do that by making, you know, private builds of Windows. I yeah. mean, all that we used to have code branches in Windows itself. If you actually look at Raymond Chen's old new thing book, yeah. he goes into some of the stories where they put those code branches in. Yeah, and I remember you know, talking to Jeff Richter about that too. In particular yeah. applications, you have to, actually, if the app running is, you know, Doom, then, yeah. So we don't have to do that anymore. I mean, Microsoft Research did some work on on uh, rerouting Windows API functions, and you know we introduced the Shim infrastructure back in Windows 2000. Uh, we used it quite a bit for Windows XP and getting a lot of the uh, you know consumer software that used to run on 9x working. Um, we used it extensively in Vista and Beyond to get all the stuff that required admin rights uh, to work without those admin rights with UAC enabled, which was the default. Um, you know, and those same techniques can be applied to enterprise software. The challenge being, you've got to know what you're doing to apply that. And so we've we've been trying to kind of spread that knowledge as well as understand what were the you know unforeseen consequences of some of the changes we made that may have been fine in the commercial software world, but really hit the enterprise disproportionately hard. So tell me about the shim thing that you're talking. Is this what application compatibility essentially is? Uh, it's part of it, right? So, I mean, when I, when I think about, you know, how you remediate things, you know, uh, most of the products we have have, you know, built-in compatibility infrastructure. So if I think about Windows, you know, there is one implementation of a given Windows API today that doesn't branch based upon, you know, application name, although some of those branches are actually still in the source code. 
Um, it allows us to target a fix at one application or several applications and have it only be applied to those and just, in essence, modify the behavior for that Windows API. Mm. Probably the most common one that we're still seeing today, right? And it's, it's remarkable that we still have this problem. But a massive number of applications on Windows 8, the reason why they don't run out of the box on Windows 8 is because they ask Windows, hey, what version of Windows are you? Yeah. And Windows says, Hi, I'm uh, Windows 8. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. And it's yeah. like, oh, you're not Windows 7? Uh, let's go ahead and not run. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's just go ahead and oh, not but, run. But first, let's pop a dialog that says, you should upgrade to the latest version of Windows. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> and that happens with every new operating system, seems to me. Yeah. So we, so we, so Shim will basically intercept, you know, it goes through the import address table um, of the Win Portable executable file format. So in the XE and the DLLs it links to and just finds all instances of get version EX and swaps it out with the, our own private implementation that says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Windows 7 or I'm Windows XP or I'm whatever Windows you want me to be. It's kind of like, you know, well, what's your name? Well, uh, what do you want it to be? So it sounds like then uh, it's a little anticlimactic when you show up at somebody's site and you look around and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, shampoink, put that in there, boom, bing, bam, everything works. Is there any, is there any real challenge? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, some of those things are easy, and that's, you know, kind of what, what I try to do is to, you know, when I talk to developers, tell them the stuff that's going to get them in trouble later. You know, asking what version of the OS you have, you know, or what version. I've seen JavaScript version checks. I've seen IE version checks. If you're doing a version check, think over, do you really have to do that? Because it's so easy to do it wrong, and I spend a lot of my time clearing that. But that's that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the easy stuff. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of hard stuff out there. And so what I try to do when I'm, you know, speaking at conferences or writing articles is, help people, other people, do the easy stuff for me, so that what's left is actually the fun, interesting, gnarly debugging problem. Now, just before we go on, Chris, are you saying don't test for version, or when you do test for version, say greater than or equal to? Well, if, if you really feel you have to check for the version, mm-hmm. do a greater than or equal to check. But, you know, particularly, I mean, the, the customers that I work with most, which are enterprise customers, right? you know, why would you check for a version? Right. Right. Because you, you're the one that puts the OS out there. If someone decides to go and install NT4 in a system and then call you complaining that something doesn't work, hang up the phone. Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> call in the black helicopters, actually, because he's clearly doing something he shouldn't be doing and he needs to be captured. But the fact, the fact that they're dumb enough to phone you to tell you that, you know, they deserve what they get. <laughs> I mean, so, it just gets people in trouble. There's, there's been very few times when I've, I've had someone go, oh, thank goodness I put that version check in there. Yeah, that saved us a lot of pain. No, not true. <laughs> so if I can get technical on you here for a minute, what exactly is the import address table in a Windows app? So, yeah, so I, I, it's really very interesting because I've been explaining that a lot because I just debugged another issue with the app sequencer that was related to the IAT. So I've been <laughs> discussing this for the past couple of days. Um, so the, the way that, that Windows works, um, it is that, you know, at some level, yes, there's Explorer, yes, there's all this sort of other goo going on that shows up visually, but as an application platform, it's just a pile of DLLs. 
And the way that DLLs work is they just say, all right, so you're going to have your XD that's going to have some starting address, and it's going to bring those DLLs into the memory space. But if DLL number one wants to live at this address, that's this sort of this default address space, and then I come along, I load another DLL, and it wants the same address space, they can't both be at the same address in memory. So DLL2 has to get rebased. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, why would a DLL want to live at a particular place in memory? Ah, well, you've got to have it someplace where it defaults to load. Right, but I thought because they were dynamically you have loaded. you a reference to a function in a DLL, right, the way that dynamic loading works is you just say, I want to load something at this address space. So it's going to have hard-coded in addresses, you know, for all the JMP instructions within itself. So rebasing requires it to go through and update that. But you also have calls into those functions from every other binary that, you know, rebasing... If I had to go in and reach into everything that had been loaded previously or subsequently, I've got a really intractable problem on my hand. Wow. So I, I figured we, it was all based that. on offsets and, you know, yeah. I've, I figured it was, you know, you load up where you load up, that becomes your base address, and then all of your offsets in the DLL just automatically shift accordingly. I didn't know they were hard-coded. Well, they, they would be hard-coded unless you do precisely that, which is, you figure out what the offsets within the DLL are, and then you resolve those at runtime when the DLL is loaded. Oh, okay. So the, the import address table is precisely that layer of indirection. I see. So there's just a table in memory that, that starts off holding the offsets, and then we sort of rip through and go, okay, when you've loaded you and gotten your final loading address, we'll just add the offset to your load address, and boom, now we fill up that table for that DLL. Beautiful. Now, now you've got this table, right? This is how shims work. We say, oh, here's a table pointing to where this function works. If I'd like you to behave differently, I can just overwrite the address sitting in that table with the address of whatever replacement function I'd like to stuff in there. Now, that's precisely what we do in the shim engine. It's what we do, you know, the, the Microsoft detours, which is what's used by uh, AppV and, and the sequencer as well as at runtime to go through and redirect and get that different behavior and the application just doesn't even know what's going on. So the shim, when it loads, and it loads as a DLL, obviously, in the address space, it has mm -hmm. special access to that IAT, and it just goes ahead and rewrites. And that, you know, I, I can see how that would be wonderful for application compatibility, but also a huge security threat. Uh, from a security perspective, it can't do anything that your app couldn't do, right? So the, the code to do IAT interception... Um, you mentioned Jeff Richter before his, you know, his book on Windows, which he recently had a, an update on that uh, Christoph Nassar uh, updated and freshened it up a bit. There's a chapter on API interception. The code takes less than a page to write. Anyone can do it. Um, you know, the, from a security perspective, anything in your shim code is it has the exact same constraints as the rest of the code in the app. Right. So if you trust the app, you trust the app. 
It, right. If something gets, if the app gets infected, that's obviously one way it could, but, but mm-hmm. you know, then you have a bigger problem. Right. And if the app gets infected, it's already infected. Right. So there, there, are, I mean, there are, <laughs> right. if, if you already have, if you can't get any more power, no elevation of privilege, you know, you've got two ways you can do your bad deed. You can do your bad deed by intercepting an import address table, or you can just do the bad deeds immediately. You've already got code running. Got it. Uh, it's usually a lot less work to just do the bad deed outright when you're sitting right there. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's very cool, and and, it, and it's beautiful and elegant, actually. So, so tell, run us through a scenario. Um, you don't have to name names, but that was of a particular challenge when you showed up. Uh sure. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll run through the one that um, that actually also involves import address tables because it's fresh in my mind, but it's sort of a, an interesting challenge uh, with a customer I'm working with right now, which is they have an application that, you know, it dates, you know, 20 years back or more. Right? So they've been nursing this thing along, and, you know, they've been gradually updating pieces of it and keeping it, you know, as, as fresh as it needs to be to keep running, but just sort of barely. So there's lots of EV6 code in there. There's some visual C++2 and 3 in there, and they've just been starting with a vendor app that they've just been building on top of for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges they have is that just getting it installed is close to impossible. Yeah, the dependency stack must be awesome. <laughs> well, there's, there's, I have to make sure I have all the prerequisites put on there first and foremost. Fortunately, most of them are still in Windows, but then challenge number two is they run the original MSI that dates back to around 1999, which is the most recent commercial version. And then there's just all kinds of VB scripts and VB apps and, you know, things that just run subsequent tasks that all have to be run in unison. And they've literally got a 50% success rate of install work. And their only resolution, if it doesn't, is go again. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So then, you know, we, you know, we go through and repeat the job, repeat the job, repeat the job. And when you think about how many desktops this hits, that's an amazing amount of work they have to do. So, you know, their challenge is how do we solve that? And in this case, there was a customer that had software assurance, so they just went directly to App B. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were going through and trying to sequence the app. So question number one was, you know, did it work on Windows 7? Right? And the amazing thing was, as far as we can tell, Everything works on Windows 7. In fact, the only dependency that tripped us up was that it was using DDE to communicate to Adobe Reader, and that wasn't working with anything but a particularly ver- particular version of Reader. Friends Holy do man. not let friends use DDE. <laughs> well, they do since 1983, but, you know, not so much today. <laughs> Wow. They might as well be using tin cans and strings and rocks and sticks and smoke signals, man. So, I mean, what version of Adobe is that? Is that like version 2? Oh, no. It'll still work today. Really? They're still supporting DDE inside of Adobe Reader? Yes, they do. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So... So we we got that lined up, and we got the code fixed to make it agnostic to version. So so we're good there. We just go and grok some stuff out of the registry, and then we can just automatically send the right signals to whichever we are. All systems go, but let's fix the install problem. When about fixing the install problem, we're like, you know, let's just put it in App B. 
Right. And that way we just get it installed once and then we just drop this file everywhere around the whole company. Brilliant solution. And so we're going through running all of the different install scripts and we get one that's just hanging up and crashing in, in filling up an access violation message. So I'm like, all right, it's an AV, which means we're pretty much going to have to hit it with a debugger because I got nothing in the event log. So I'm going in, I'm debugging it. And in essence, we have the AV, which is I'm trying to jump to a null instruction preceded by a uh, C++ exception. And so by, and by default in the debugger, we don't stop on those. So I'm like, let's tap on that one and see what that one was because it's almost immediately beforehand. And that exception was one where um, it was the Detour CLL. From, so Microsoft Research has both non-commercial and commercial versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was using a commercial version in the app v sequencer. And it was getting hung up and getting an exception. It handled it, swallowed it. So note to developers, don't swallow your exceptions unless you know no harm was done. Continuing on is usually not the recipe for good happiness. <laughs> um, <laughs> swallowed it up and carried on, uh, leaving part you of the You certainly get rid of those pesky errors, though, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no dialogue boxes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it swallowed it and moved on, and it actually hadn't finished patching up the address table, because that's how that B works. They do the same thing that Shins do, was going in and intercepting file and registry calls with its own calls to redirect it to inside or outside of the bubble, based upon the various business rules, it hadn't passed them, it left the null, and then it was trying to call something from the table, which was sitting at zeros. And so you call into null, you set the instruction pointer, and immediate access violation, and, and down goes the program. Turns out that this binary happened to have a corrupted IAT. Wow. It just it didn't have the right closing markers on there, which at runtime isn't a big deal. It's a table. Right. So the fact that, you know, it's not finished properly was fine. But but when we think about, all right, so runtime, you're okay, but if I'm trying to iterate through the table to patch it, if you don't end properly, I'm going to try and continue, right? And so I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't the compiler that did that. The binary got corrupted. Now we're just trying to figure out when in time did it get corrupted. Was it shipped to the customer that way? You know, so you know, it could have been corrupted for 10 years for all that we know. We have no idea, right? But, you know... I try to simplify things because that's the kind of investigation that most people aren't really, you know, looking to do. They'd rather go and find the ones that we can throw a quick version lie on it. Awesome. No code is safe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about obfuscation, right? Is, uh, you know, there's pretty much no code in the world that, you know, if the computer can read it, a human who understands what computers do can read it. So if you really need it obfuscated, keep it on your server. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't don't send it around. It's really the only option you have. Oh, exactly. Just uh just have it accept- well and I I think Windows 8 is going a long way towards some of this stuff because the the containers on Windows 8 is much tighter. Uh and I'm hoping we're going to be able to dive into this. Just the way that Windows 8 the app model in Windows 8 to me seems to be a big jump, much bigger than the past few versions of Windows. Hey Richard, must be that happy time again. That's right. You it's, say you have a way of saying "Hey, Richard," that just lets me know <laughs> <laughs> it's time to give away stuff. I love it. What are we giving away today? We're giving away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. It's a two thousand dollar value of software from Telerik. Just nice. about everything they do uh, in one box. And today's winner is Roger Odell. 
Oh, congratulations, Roger. Golf clap Golf for clap you, for sir. Roger. And uh, he was picked at random from one of our thousands of fan club members. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's the .NET Rocks fan club. Just sign up and answer a few questions. And every show we give away stuff. And every December, we're going to give away five grand, $5,000 worth of cool technology handpicked by Mr. Campbell and myself. And that project's becoming stranger and stranger. What is worth $5,000 these days? Yeah, because everything's coming down in price. But, yeah. you know, I actually did spec out an ultimate 64-core machine the other day. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but unfortunately, it got up into the $12,000 range. <laughs> so we could give away half of it this year and half of it next year? Well, you know, if if you just want the motherboard and CPU... That's about five grand. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Maybe we'll just have to pull it back. Maybe 64 weighs a little much. Maybe 32 way. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, I don't think it matters at that point. No? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I spec'd out like two monitors and a big graphics card and 256 gigs of RAM and, right. you know, a couple of SSDs and, you know, six terabytes of regular storage. Pretty soon oh, yeah. you're talking about a real machine. That's a big honking machine but you know that's 12 grand so if you want to be a part of this it's easy to sign up just go to the dotnet rocks website click on the big get free stuff link on the right hand side uh, answer a few questions and you're in the pool to win so let me ask you a question chris if your customer had this 64 core you know big honking machine with 256 gigs of ram would it crash faster <laughs> That's very dark of you. <laughs> crash faster. <laughs> the, 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 the crashing was sufficiently fast. Nice. Okay. All right, we we got to drill into Win Eight here, guys, because I mean, obviously, that's the big concern: is how many folks enterprise apps when they just drop them into a Win Eight box are going to run, and how many are not going to run? Are you starting to see this now, Chris? Is this in your your repertoire of projects? So, so we're you know, the data we have so far. I mean, obviously, we haven't shipped it. Is still very much on the anecdotal side. Right. So, I mean, we've got you know tens of customers deploying to dozens of workstations, and so you know the stories you get are still pretty limited. But yeah. I, I've got to say that so far, you know, they're extremely promising. The, the challenge we see remaining is well, there's kind of two two big ones that that are kind of hitting my radar and, and what I'm most worried about. Uh, the first one is just the version checks. I mean, they're everywhere, and I don't know why people are still writing them. Hmm. You know, because they're they're not even adding value anymore. They're just literally they're breaking you, and they're keeping you you know held hostage to something for no valid technical reason. Um, the other area that we're seeing that's a little bit more interesting is in the Internet Explorer space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure how how many of your your audiences are web developers. Lots. Um, but, you know, one of the sort of interesting aspects of Internet Explorer that a lot of customers don't understand, right? So developers understand this more than the IT pros who manage them are. But, you know, when you say, hey, this works on IE, you know, the question is, well, which which one? Because right. inside of IE, there's more than one set of guts. So if I look at IE8, there's three sets. There's the Quirks Mode engine, there's the IE7 standards engine, there's the IE8 engine. If I look at IE9, I've got four of them. Quirks, which is, you know, I have no doc type, so I'm going to default to that. Seven standards, I've got to opt into that. Eight standards, and then the new nine standards, which has all the HTML5 support. Now, 
Quirks mode is something that's not unique to Internet Explorer. Mm -hmm. Other browsers have it too, but they've implemented it differently. And one of the big goals we have in Internet Explorer is same markup. So we want to be able to say, hey, if you don't have a doc type and therefore land in quirks mode, we don't want you to behave differently on IE than you do on Firefox or Chrome or Safari or any of the other guys. So we've made a quirks mode that's much more um, compatible with quirks mode as implemented by everybody else. But by definition, more compatible means less compatible with the way it used to be. So we actually kept the existing one and called it IE5 quirks and made a new one. So now in IE10, there are literally six different sets of guts that you can choose from. So as a developer, and particularly for enterprise applications, since you have six, right, and the compatibility button is a binary switch, doesn't really get you the full power of the platform, it starts to become real important to say which one you want so you get that behavior regardless of the environment and the policies that you live in. The second one, and we're starting to see a little bit of this, is historically, if I, you know, was in, you know, a, a standards mode website and I was in the local intranet zone, so it's an internal app, by default I would get compatibility with IE7. Mm -hmm. So I'd get seven standards. Whereas if I was in the internet zone, I would have the latest, standards mode engine. So whether that's IE8 or 9 or 10, I would just get that version of standards. However, you know, that's usually pretty obvious. Like I break and I'm like, oh, I've got, I'm landed in the wrong zone. I'm in the internet zone, which means I get promoted to these latest standards, which is more compliant with standards, but less compatible with my old stuff. So now I know I've missed zone. I can see it right away. If I have a quirks mode website, the quirks mode bottom half of seven standards quirks mode dichotomy you had for compatibility view was the same quirks mode that you would get for the eight standard slash quirks or nine standard slash quirks that you would get in the internet zone. So customers who didn't have their internal applications running in um, standards mode could possibly have never noticed mm -hmm. because you got the same quirks and now you get a different one. Now the fix is still you know, pretty straightforward. Well, You've miszoned it. Put it back. Put it back in the zone, and it'll go back to the old IE5 quirk, um, and and resolve it that way. So it's it's not a hard fix. Yeah, but it's but not it's an obvious one. It requires you to take some action. Yeah, it, it's a total blindside. You have not taken action up till now for a long time, and it's always just worked. And then one day it doesn't. Right. Yeah, so I look at that, and I don't, I don't see anything sort of hugely problematic. So we're not seeing like you know wholesale, like, hey, we added a feature. I mean, you know, think Windows Vista, you think UAC, and making everyone standard users. You're like, all right, great. There, there's a quarter of the software of the world that's going to have to be touched. Right. Um, you know, we don't, we don't heavily have anything like that. So you know, I'm sort of looking at this as an opportunity to look at, you know, not just compatibility. How can I get some duct tape on this thing to keep it working for just a little while longer? But instead, looking at how do I start modernizing my stuff? So speaking of quirks mode, this is one of the interesting facts. In worldwide, of the top 5,000 websites in the world, mm -hmm. about 12% of them are still running in quirks mode. So they don't have of a the doc type declared? 5,000 websites in the world, yeah, no doc type. And of the top 5,000 most commonly used web applications on the public Internet, you know, over one in ten are still running in quirks mode. Wow! And in the enterprise, it's about seventy percent using quirks mode. Oh, man, 
And Quirks Mode, I'll remind you, that's based on a 1999 implementation of Web Standard. Uh-huh. <laughs> so no HTML5, no goodness there, right? If I look at, you know, the performance impact of that, um, you know, we'll, we'll take a, you know, the, the, our last two browsers. So IE9, uh, a Quirks Mode website versus an IE9 standards website running JavaScript, it's about 10 times Faster to run the IE9 engine than it is to run Quirks mode. Wow. Um, we've, we've reduced the gap. So an IE10, uh, Quirks mode is only twice as slow. <laughs> it's, it's kind of remarkable that that's actually a huge improvement. Right. Uh, cause it's still twice as slow. Like you're like, ah, oh, you could take one second or two seconds. Uh, and you're going to take two seconds if you go in Quirks. So, you know, it's an opportunity to Stop just, hey, I've got to duct tape it and keep it just working somehow any way possible, but instead say, how do I start catching up? You know, how can I start taking advantage of these new things and writing on this? Well, if I don't know about, you know, how to opt in with XUA compatible on, on a web application and start using that, yeah, I, I should probably start learning about that and say, oh, I want to make sure I'm actually not just using IE, but using IE 10 in all of its standard HTML5 glory and not just I'm sitting in IE10 in the oldest possible way to use IE. Yeah, that's the cool part. What you're really saying there is you think you're in IE10 and you're really not. You're in a mutant version of IE55. I love it. But that's effectively (laughs) what you've done to it. Right. When you're running in Quirks mode. People always say, hey, I can't believe you don't let us run a couple of different IEs side by side. We actually do. We just... You know, we, we've baked it into the product. You know, you can't run two different Xs, so your users don't have to be forced to pick and choose themselves manually. Right. We've given the developer and the IT pro the ability to control that themselves, but we actually have all those things still sitting inside of there. But she begs the question, and I know this is slightly off topic, but why isn't the IE6 engine in this stack? Uh, for uh, Historically speaking... Um, when we went from IE6 to IE7, the number of websites that were using standards mode yep. was relatively small, mm-hmm. right? So we actually kept 50% of IE6 because IE6 is where we introduced having a quirks and standard. Oh, okay. So, you know, most applications were running in quirks mode on IE6. Some were running on standards, and when we talked to those folks, they said, listen, if I chose standards, it's because I want standards, and therefore, I'll want the new standards. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So, effectively, Quirks mode is IE6. It's, it's most of it, right? So, the seven standards versus six standards, there are some differences, and some of them are breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll say that the single most, you know, significant change that we made was we fixed a bug uh, in IE7 where, you know, in IE6, if you had the doc type, but it wasn't the very first line of markup in your code, IE6 never read it huh. and therefore put you in quirks mode. So even and though you had that, it, 
didn't work. Right. Yeah, we didn't see it. You know, and, and clearly to have the switch that puts you into standards mode not itself be standards compliant is the kind of bug we want to fix. <laughs> so we did. And as a result, we promoted all kinds of sites that on IE6 were running in quirks mode happily. And in IE7 and 8 and 9 and 10, we start running them in standards mode where they fail in spectacular ways. Um, and the fix is just, we'll put them back into quirks mode. Either delete the doc type, which was never read on 6. Right. Uh, or use XUA compatible to force yourself to go back down. Or use the group policy that we added um, as a hot fix for IE8 and the product in IE9 and above to target a site to go back to quirks. Result, you know, mitigating the impact of that bug fix. Because, you know, I, very few people would say we shouldn't have fixed that bug. <laughs> but in, in doing so, we broke all kinds of web applications. Uh, for example, every single XHTML application ever written is hmm. impacted by that bug. Yeah. Because in XHTML, the doctor could never be the first line. Correct. XML declaration is. So I got to imagine all these people have, you know, just thinking... I put the doc type in, everything just worked, no big deal, never had to think about it ever again, it worked out fine. And then never knowing, that's because it was never used. Surprise. And, yeah. and well, there's a big problem developer knowledge, because thus far, you know, I mean, I've talked to about 250, 300 different customers in the past six years about this topic. Um, I've probably met three who e even really were aware of what a doc type was and did. Huh. Interesting point. So it's like, all right, so we have this great option for developers to opt in, and no one knows that they're on the hook to opt in. Right. Much less that it didn't work in one particular scenario, but you know, you don't have to worry about that because nobody knew about it in the first place. <laughs> what do you think the chances are of IE ever getting WebKit compatibility? Define WebKit compatibility. I mean, our goal is to have the same markup work across, you know, any browser. So you should be able to write HTML not for a given browser, but just to be HTML that every browser is able to read. Well, for example... That's absolutely our goal. I got into this... Tro I, well, I, I realized this when I went to a website that had... Uh, well, it's the Kendo UI website where they're showing demos of the mobile apps, and you can't view the demos if you don't have a WebKit-enabled browser. So they're actually checking to see if your browser supports WebKit, and if it doesn't, they're not even going to try to run the demo. Now, that doesn't mean that the yeah. browser couldn't run it, just that they're not going to let it happen. Sure. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different situations that we run into. I mean, there's some, I mean, one of the things that's nice about um, you know, the current versions of IE is that you've got developer tools built in, and the current version of the developer tools will allow you to give a user agent string for another browser to the server. Um, and if you don't have, you know, a, a current version that provides that, you can do the same thing with Fiddler. Uh, there's a lot of websites that work perfectly fine if you just say, hey, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Chrome. Right, And you'll right. just start working because they're just doing a version check or, in this case, a, a, a particular app check uh, and doing it in a way that's, you know, excluding something that shouldn't be excluded. Wow, yeah. Didn't so we that, start this conversation with this one? Yeah. Uh, th this was okay. the beginning conversation. Don't check yeah. for the version. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and it's, you know, we're starting to see some of the really popular frameworks get away from this. So if you look at like jQuery, 
jQuery has all these, you know, will leverage features that are in different browsers, but they don't check for are you this browser. They just say, do you support this feature in the way that I need you to? Right. And so I'll just use it. If not, I'll provide an alternate implementation that everyone else is going to have to use. It may not be as fast or as quick, but will work. And that's the way that, you know, we think it, it's really done best. And we're starting to see some, you know, broad public implementations of this. I think the other challenge we see, particularly with people who are targeting a specific browser, is when we look at where web standards are, right, HTML5 is not done, right, and probably won't be done for several more years. I mean, right. I think there was an initial estimate that it was going to be done around 2022. Um, I think it's going to be probably be done sooner than that, but I don't know. Our, certainly our standards guys, um, you know, like, you know, Adrian Bateman is one of the guys I know who's really involved in the standards, whereas they'll know way more about that than me. But, you know, some of these things aren't done, and some of these are not only not done, but they're not terribly stable. So we're, you know, we sort of learned our lesson from IE6 of, hey, you know, if it's not stable, let's not implement that just yet. Yeah. <laughs> because right. then when it changes, by definition, it's a breaking change. So, you know, we try to wait until, even if it's not at recommendation level, you know, there's consensus that, yeah, this is probably going to stick around. It's probably pretty good and, and stabilized down and people believe it's secure and they don't see the need to yank it out before we implement it in something that's shipped to the public. You know, to a large part, just out of, you know, when we look at, you know, it's like an enterprise deployment, for example, you know, they can't afford to go in and redo their website every time the spec changes. Right? So the spec changes, so therefore to be standards compliant, the browser changes, which means the code that you've written is broken now. Right. And you have to rewrite it. And if you're a public website, which, you know, so browser targeted at consumers, which consumes public websites, not a problem because you'll often have a, you know, 10 to 1, 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1 ratio of developers to websites. In the enterprise, it's usually about between 10 and 100 to 1 websites to developer. So if I you know, come along and just plow down 100 of your websites, that could be a year's worth of work to you. Sure. To get the update, and if that update is the only way to get security patches, then I either don't have a secure browser, or I have a hundred websites that don't work for the next year. Yeah, no, neither one of which is a really great option for me. And these are the booby traps that people get into, and mixing security patches with feature patches, and and you know they're going to keep the apps working and take the risk. That's that's the trap you put them into. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard trade-off, and no one likes to make that. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I mean, I am kind of glad that there are, there are, you know, browsers that are on the cutting edge that are sort of pushing the standards forward and getting commercial implementations helps to really understand, you know, what's going on. So it's not like I wish that those things didn't exist, because I think it's good that they exist. Yeah. I, I, you know, the question is, where am I going to use which one? I mean, I run several browsers on mine, and, and our data indicates that over half of Users have more than one browser installed. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the question is, under what circumstances are you going to do that? And if you're targeting one browser, you better hope that your audience is going to live in circumstances where they'll accept that. I think the more sensible thing is to use that for prototype, experimental, or controlled situations and look to how do I get something that works across all browsers um, for the, the default case. 
All right. I mean, we have a picture here of the, the browser scenarios we talk about Win 8. I got to presume that anybody taking an existing Win 7 application, a client-based application and running on a Win 8, it's going to run in the desktop mode without any problems. And I guess you're, I know you're only at anecdotal data, but can you say that's true or do you know, is there known whammies? Uh, version check. Version check is the one that's going to get Version you. Version checks are a big known whammy. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> but you... for the most part, I mean, our big investment was in building a new app model, um, and extending the security model. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've actually got a, a talk I'm premiering coming up at Tech at Australia in about four weeks or so, mm-hmm. uh, really diving into the depth of how we've extended the Windows security model in absolutely interesting ways for Windows 8, but most of the, New work was done in support of the new app model. Right. Um, leaving the desktop model, you know, roughly the same. Obviously, we wanted to do performance improvements across the board, but if we're setting new rules, we'd like to set new rules for new apps. Right. And grandfather in things where we can, unless there's a security concern that we're trying to patch up. So it's effectively, it's a totally different development strategy. It's a completely different UI. You've got to rethink your app. You don't have a choice if you want to go to the new mode. And I notice we're carefully not saying Metro. What? <laughs> I've never heard that term before. Yeah. What is it we're talking See, about? I, there, there, there are two jobs I could never have, lawyer or marketer. <laughs> and I don't understand either one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've had to abandon this word, and we can make, we can make all kinds of jokes around it. Uh, let's give it a name. The, are we just going to call it the new mode for the duration of this show? Uh, I think Windows Store app is what Visual Studio is calling it. Right. Um, you know, but we're amongst friends. We'll we'll just call them Wayne. 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 <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> it's waning. <laughs> well, I was writing Wayne the other day. Nice. <laughs> well, I think back to the customer you were talking about with the twenty-year-old code base, and they continue migrating things. And and I think this is going to be reality for a lot of folks that you may want to start building in Wayne. And uh, so you're going to start implementing a few features over there, but then you're also going to have some features still running in Classic. Like, th- these are interesting times. Well, yeah, and, and learning the chops to refactor things. And this this is one of the, the, the problem spaces that I'm really trying to work on now, now that we've gotten under, you know, not we're not done yet, but a lot of the weight of, hey, let's get off of XP, you know, we have enough people working in that space, so I'm dedicating less and less time on it. Now looking more and more at how do we not only get you out from underneath the, you know, 12, 13-year-old OS, how do we get you able to embrace and really get the maximum advantage out of the new one? And a lot of that requires us to build new skills and how do we update not just one at a time, but whole portfolios. So how do we, how do we just refactor an application to build a Metro front end. Right? If I think of my old DB6 client server app where I've got a lot of code sitting on top of it, can I quickly pull off the DB6 front end but leave the gut? So I don't have to do a full-on rewrite of yeah. all of that logic and then you know repeat the 20 years of bug fixes that's also in there. I mean, you know, People always say old code is bad code. And it's not true. Old code is the most bug-fixed code you'll ever work with. Sure. So, so getting rid of it is losing a valuable asset. So how do we not, you know, obviously there'll be some things that'll just, you know what, scratch and rewrite, let's start over. But 
for a lot of things, the stuff is good, right? And that, that means going into some, to some situations and saying, all right, you've got a VB6 app, right? And VB6, you know, I know that's going to be shipped with Windows 8. So Windows 8 shipping in 2012, which means I get 10 years of support for that, which we've done good until 2022. Uh, incidentally, that means that by the time VB6, which came about in 1998, uh, at its earliest will go away, will be after 24 years as an app platform. Right. We will have lived with VB6 longer than we had Buddy Holly. <laughs> <laughs> you have a way of putting things in perspective, man. That's great. <laughs> So, so now I've got this VB6, and so we've got to go in and talk to people and say, you know, in, in which actually corporate developers get this, like, hey, you know what, fire up your VB6 development environment and let's pull off this code. Yeah. Let's leave the rest and recompile it, um, and then let's just build a new front end on top of it, right? When you, whereas when you talk to consultants who are like, oh, it's all about the latest and greatest and we'll always live in this environment, um, if I can spend a little bit of time in the old environment, and light up my ability to jump to the new one without having to do a whole rewrite, there's huge potential value. Think about slicing off backends and saying, hey, you know, client server, can I do some cloud here? Yeah. Right? Can I slice this off and put this functionality somewhere else with something that's better than, let me just put this server somewhere on infrastructure as a service. Can I re-architect it to really take advantage of, like, platform as a service, which has much better economies, in a whole host of scenarios without redoing everything every time or without redoing nothing and just sticking it in the cloud and just hoping I can afford enough machines to run this thing at scale. Yeah, I've still got some COM components built in VB6 that originally were calling ASP pages that are now, you know, they're sort of built in the Microsoft DNA architecture that are now wrapped mm -hmm. as web services and O data and and they they will work with a modern app they, they but it's still that old code still back there you want to uh, know it's a great sure. parlor trick is when you're you know just hanging out in the office or whatever and your workers are hey i'm having this weird problem and you know it's some sort of active x thing that can't be found you you pull up a command window and hit red server 32 <laughs> and magically <laughs> everything works and like whoa <laughs> Whoa, you're a genius. It's like, no, I just suffered through that age. Uh, well, it, people always bust on com, but if, if if you look at what com did, I mean, a lot of the, the initial work was to to get to, you know, be compiler agnostic, which was very important at the time. You know, this day and age is not a whole, you know, anywhere near the same competition in compiler vendors. That's not the same priority, but the fundamentals of COM are so rock solid that they've become the fundamentals of WinRT. Yep, if COM is love. If you actually look at you know what this what this infrastructure is, it's not just COM with extra goose stuck on to it. It is sort of this new thing. It's a hybrid that yeah. leverages all of the goodness on there. So yeah, COM was around for a while, and COM is really great technology. Um, you know, as an as an add-on model, I mean, there are certainly challenges. You know, when it comes to you know security and reliability. Um, but from performance perspectives and from the historical perspective, it made sense the decisions that they do. And a lot of the, you know, core ideas are just as sound today as they were when we first introduced it back in the 80s. And Don Box just texted me, your check is in the mail. 
<laughs> hey, if you want to learn about Com, there is no better resource than his book. I oh, mean, that's true. His .NET book earlier, the best .NET book, and of course the best Com book. Yeah, um, well, I yeah. learned a lot about .NET by reading his book about the internals of .NET. So I know someone's got to get him on the phone and figure out why he stopped showing up at conferences because he was always the highlight for me. I'm with you. Now he started working on all these dark projects that he just wasn't allowed to talk about anything he was working on. Yeah. But every once in a while, I still get to jam with him, so that's great. Yeah. Hey, we're out of time. It's been a great show, Chris. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And great stories, too. Keep them coming. All right, we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.